With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. Help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.com survey. Thanks. Knowing that this was such a long shot, I, you know, poured everything I had into this pitch and it ended up being, I think I was supposed to go for like 30 minutes and I went for well over an hour because I wrote out 52 episodes of what the show could be. I just figured if this, you know, was my one shot, why not just go for it? Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it's been a while since we talked. I'm happy to be here with you again. June, it has been too long. The vagaries of scheduling have uh, left us not paired up on an episode for quite a while. And and it's uh, lovely to be here with you. And by here, I mean this Zoom call. Exactly. We've got the band together via Zoom. Exactly. Uh, The voice we heard at the beginning of the show belongs to Noelle Stevenson, who was your guest this week. Who is she and what does she do? Uh, Noelle is a writer and a cartoonist, and uh, I think we can say wonderkind. I think that's appropriate uh, here. You're a wonderkind until you're 30, right? And then Mm -hmm, at 30, mm -hmm. you're... You're booted out of the industry entirely. Anyway, <laughs> she, uh, and I should mention here that Noelle has recently said and, and has said on Twitter and in, in her own working that she um, accepts all pronouns, including she uh, uh, first came to broad attention with her comic Nimona, uh, which she began in college and then became a book. And then that book made her the youngest ever nominee for the National Book Award. And uh, after that came the remake of She-Ra, which she developed and was also the showrunner for. And she also co-created and co-writes the comic Lumberjanes. Wow. Youngest ever National Book Award nominee for a comic she started when she was in college. Totally relatable. Indeed. What is Nimona about? So Nimona started as a webcomic and then became a graphic novel. It's about a young shapeshifter named Nimona who decides to apprentice herself to her city's area supervillain. It takes place in this kind of both medieval and sci-fi universe. Only the big difference between Nimona and that supervillain, who is named Sir Ballister Blackheart, is that he actually has an ethics of... 
it's gradually revealed over the course of the book that he is not really the bad guy, right? Um, but Nimona is kind of a bad guy. She's a, she's a figure of pure chaos. And, and as a result, it has this great kind of slapstick sense of humor. You know, Nimona is constantly turning into monsters and eating people. Sir Ballister Blackheart doesn't want to kill anyone, you know, et cetera and so forth. And the book gradually turns, I would say, darker and weirder as it goes along. I absolutely loved it. Of course you did. And Shira? Well, where do we start with She-Ra, right? I mean, the easiest thing to say is that it's a five-season-long animated show for children on Netflix that is a remake of a cartoon <laughs> show that I watched in first grade. But it is also, and I really do not say this lightly, I think one of the great television shows of the past decade. It's definitely for kids, but it has a real sophistication to it, particularly around its plotting and its sense of humor. And it might be the most diverse television show well, it's certainly the most diverse one I've ever seen. So uh, I'll just leave it at that. Wow. I'm super excited to learn more about Noelle and her creative process. And then after that conversation, we'll talk through a question sent to us by a listener who wonders if it's wrong to work on art for its own sake or if you should instead use his talents to help vulnerable people. But before we get to that, let me take a second to remind everyone listening about the importance of Slate Plus. If you enjoy this podcast and the rest of Slate's journalism, please consider supporting us by joining Slate Plus. Those of you who are already members will hear a little more from Isaac's conversation with Noel Stevenson. Isaac, what is that segment about? Ah, yes. So Slate Plus members will get to listen in on a really great conversation between me and Noelle about her recent graphic memoir, The Weight of Them, which is an autobiographical comic about her recent top surgery and the redefinition that's caused of her gender identity. It's a really, really beautiful uh, short memoir that she wrote over the course of this year that's worth checking out, as is our conversation which you can check out if you're a Slate Plus member. I think I've just queued up your pitch, June. You have. Thank you. That exclusive members-only content is just one of the many benefits of Slate Plus membership. Others include zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month, and to sign up, all you have to do is go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's hear Isaac's conversation with Noelle Stevenson. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, Price and Coverage Match Limited, 
by state law. Noelle Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us on Working This Week. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't we just start in the present moment? What is your creative process like right now? What are what are you working on and how are you working on it? Uh, yeah, so it's been a pretty weird year for everyone, I think. Mm-hmm. But I feel really lucky that I've managed to continue working, um, you know, because animation is one of the few industries that's managed to, you know, keep going. It's certainly been a little bit, it's been at a slower pace for sure than what I'm used to. Uh, definitely coming off of Shira, which was just kind of this 24-7, just mind-consuming, like, it it took every waking moment of my day. Um, and so I'm in development. I'm working on a couple different things um, that I'm pretty excited about. Uh, on my end, it is development, it's pitching, it's kind of uh, various Zoom meetings to talk about, you know, notes and, and, and what we're envisioning for these projects and, and hoping that they all continue to move forward. And do you have a kind of daily creative practice when you're going to sit down to, you know, write or to draw? Is there like a time that you like to do it or a ritual that you do to help engage, you know, the material? Yeah, I, it's definitely taken a little bit of a hit. I think I'm someone who, if there's something that needs to get done, I get it done. But as uh, I think a lot of people this year have found, it's hard to keep any kind of real routine just because everything is so strange right now. And I feel like I'm going through cycles kind of, where sometimes I'm very like, okay, I wake up, I have a nice breakfast, I get straight to work. Most of the time that doesn't happen. Most of the time I'm just like, you know, um, everything's just all a little bit off. Even like my meal schedule is just like, I'm like, wait, did I eat breakfast? I have no idea. I'm like presently drinking my little like protein shake because <laughs> I like forgot about breakfast again. So it's like, um, I, like I'll go through periods where I just like, sleep a lot more than normal which I guess is like I'm trying to justify it as like a hibernation period sometimes which is just like well let's catch up on my sleep I guess and then when things really start picking up again I'll be well rested so that's the kind of way that I try to like I guess barter with myself about that kind of thing and just be like yeah you can sleep in I mean why not I'd love to talk to you a little bit about Nimona, your uh, web comic, which became a hit graphic novel. You started that when you were in college, right? Yeah, I uh, I started it when I was, I think, 19. Um, and it sort of came about in my junior year as a class assignment, actually. Um, and a really good friend, friend of mine, Amy Fleck, uh, sort of challenged me as part of that class to make a comic with original characters. Um, and that ended up being the first two pages of Nimona. Mm. And I had been doing, I'd been sort of gaining a following on Tumblr through fan art, Mm -hmm. but really kind of like starting to feel the limits of that and wanting to have my own original characters and my own original works. And Amy knew that, which was why she pushed me to explore that in this assignment. And so I ended up putting it online as a webcomic in large part because I knew that would hold me to updating it a certain number of times a week. And I wanted Deadlines to Deadlines are so important. They're so important. And for me, I'm like, I'm starting to realize this last year, just how important they are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, knowing that it's like, I have to hit this. And it's just like so much time, so many times when you're, when you're setting your own schedule and creating your own structure, it's so easy to just be like, well, I mean, I like, what's the rush? What I have all the time in the world. 
But with Nimona, I had this like, I always had this vague idea of a person in my head and they're waking up the next morning. They have their coffee. They're going to read, like catch up on their web comics. They know it's Nimona's day, like update day. And the idea of that person's disappointment, if I missed that update, like that is what it would keep me like, sometimes I'd be late on the page and I'd be like rushing at midnight the night before to finish it. But like thinking about that person and their cup of coffee somehow, this just little like image of that little mug of coffee. I guess that's also how I read my favorite web comics. Mm-hmm. But I, it was like a desire to not disappoint that person. Um, and so that helped me stick to that schedule. And I, I think I was late only one time in the entire 350 pages of the comic. Uh, Did you have, you know, there's some very big twists in Nimona um, that I won't spoil in case uh, (laughs) listeners haven't read it yet. Um, How much of the story had you worked out in advance or did you work out sort of like a chunk of it? It was interesting. It was all part of like a, uh, a big journey I'd been on at school. I had a creative writing minor, um, but most of my classes focused on prose and focused on poetry. And so I was really interested in fantasy and genre, and that was not so much uh, supported by my teachers. So I ended up dropping my creative writing minor, and I felt really discouraged about it. So I, I felt so insecure about my writing at that point that I came to the decision that I was not a writer. I was an artist. I was going to lean into what I was good at um, and just stick to that. Then I ended up in a uh, sequential art class for comics, and it hadn't been my first choice because I didn't, again, I didn't think I was a writer. But I ended up just falling in love um, with comics, and I realized that I had this new voice for telling stories. Um, but at the same time, writing a script for me felt like it was still felt a little vulnerable. I was worried by writing a script that the writing wouldn't be good enough, that I would like re- just remember all the ways that I wasn't a real writer all over again. And so a lot of the comics that I was doing in that class, I didn't have a script. I was sort of just going free form or I would thumbnail it and, and just work from that. With Nimona, especially once I realized that I wanted it to be long form, I knew I had to have a script. But in order to do that, I had to also trick myself into not really believing that I was writing. So my script for Nimona is one of the most nonsensical things I've ever written. It is a mess. I don't spell out any of the characters' names. They're all just shortened to their first letter of their name. And it is like, it's the rough, it's all in a text edit document. It's the roughest thing ever. I add pages randomly or delete them. I would sometimes be halfway through drawing a page and I would just completely change a major plot point. Um, so it, it was a mess, but that was what I had to do for myself to like convince myself in my head. I'm like, okay, but I've, I'm still a, an artist. I'm not a writer. And so the story happens when I actually draw it, not when I write it. I had no idea I would end up getting interest from major publishers. So I was very embarrassed to have to send that script to my editor at HarperCollins once they acquired it because it is incomprehensible. I never expected anyone to read it besides me. Right, right. Did you begin thinking of yourself as a writer once you were the youngest person nominated for a National Book Award in the awards history? Did that did that help? Uh... <laughs> God, I guess so. <laughs> Life just works out weird sometimes. <laughs> um, but I was very grateful to HarperCollins and they really let me... I hadn't finished the script when they acquired it. I had sort of an outline of how it ended. Um, and like I said, sometimes I really went off script uh, in some pretty big ways. And I was really grateful that they gave me that freedom and they let me keep serializing it online. 
Um, and they just kind of trusted me to do what I felt was best. I did have an idea for the ending when I first started out, which was part of what was motivating me to like tell this self-contained story. The original ending was very dark. And my, I, my older sister asked me about the ending at one point when I was home for the holidays. And I told her the ending and she got so mad at me. She refused to talk to me unless I promised to change the ending. And I actually did change the ending because of how upset she was. Wow. It was like, I was like, man, maybe you're right. Like, maybe this is a little bit, you know, too harsh. Um, and I'm actually so grateful for that because, you know, I think the original ending, it was just it was just kind of edgy in a way that I don't think the story ended up being. And so I think the ending that I ended up with is way better. Um, yeah. The original ending was just like most of the main characters die. Uh, <laughs> so thanks Hannah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So I have spent a lot of this last pandemic year watching Shira because my daughter who's six is obsessed with it. She kind of graduated from a My Little Pony obsession into a She-Ra obsession. She is now on her 10th consecutive rewatch of the entire show. So, uh, and you know what? On the 10th rewatch still holds up, I am discovering (laughs) as I watch it next to her on the couch. But uh, so how did you wind up as the developer and showrunner of She-Ra? Because I assume someone, DreamWorks must have owned it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, DreamWorks had bought the um, like a classic media library mm-hmm. that included She-Ra, but not He-Man. And they were looking for someone to show run this reboot. So I had just wrapped up my a writing gig at Disney for Wander Over Yonder, which was a great experience. And, uh, you know, I was working with Craig McCracken, who is just an incredible vision. Um, and I was sort of looking for, you know, what my next thing was going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I found out that they were looking for someone and it was this kind of thing that it seemed so far-fetched or it seemed so unlikely that they would go with someone uh, of my age and my experience level. I think it was 25 at the time. But at the same time, I guess it's something it's sort of, honestly, it's sort of similar to that experience of writing the Nimona script where it's like, sometimes these things, I think the hardest thing about creating something is just like believing you can do it. And so personally, I need to trick myself into that a lot because the second I start thinking this isn't good enough, this is not what they're going to want, like someone else is going to do a better job at this, that's when I start losing my vision. That's when I start like, you know, getting like that's when fear starts getting the better of me. And I, and I don't, you know, it, it just is not as real. It's not as from the heart. It's it's stilted. Um, it's I think, you know, I think it's just one of the biggest obstacles to be overcome when you create anything. Um, and I think that was part of it, like knowing that this was such a long shot, I just went for it. And I, you know, p- like poured everything I had into this pitch and it ended up being, I think I was supposed to go for like 30 minutes and I went for well over an hour because I wrote out all four seasons in broad strokes. I wrote out 52 episodes of, you know, of what the show could be. I just figured if this, you know, was my one shot, why not just go for it? And, and it, you know, they dug it. Mm -hmm. So they ended up hiring me to develop the show. And because it was on this very, very accelerated schedule that ended up, uh, they hired me as a uh, showrunner shortly after that. 
And within a few months, we were in full production. Wow. It seems to me that like one of the obvious challenges with this is dealing with legacy IP, Mm -hmm. right? That there's already an existing show. It already has existing characters and fans Mm -hmm. of those characters and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Did you feel like the speed at which you had to move kind of helped with that process because you just had to get buy-in for things really fast or... Yeah, I think so. I think there were a couple things that were frustrating at the time, but in hindsight, I am somewhat grateful for. Uh, Netflix requires a lead time of almost six months, which is uh, a lot. Of, I think for that's for translations. They they dub everything to make sure it has a global audience. Um, and so there's just a lot that needs to be done after we deliver those episodes to Netflix and we can't change it at that point. And so... The, when the first season came out, we were on we were working on the last chunk of episodes already. And so in hindsight, I think that really gave us the freedom to be able to make the show that we believed in for only the people within that production. We didn't have to worry about people on the message boards, you know, weighing in about a plot line that we were in the process of telling and thinking like, oh, should we change that? It seems like people don't like it. Maybe we should try something else. It was kind of terrifying at the time because you have to kind of guess. You have to guess what people are going to respond to and hope that they're in to the characters you're creating and the plot lines you're creating. Mm-hmm. I really tried to protect the crew from having too much preciousness towards the original series. As much as everyone on the crew loved it, I really didn't want anybody to be sort of like reading fan theories or going to the message boards. We did end up, you know, we went to PowerCon a couple years running. Um, A lot of people on the show did end up with like a really great, uh, like love and appreciation of the original 80s show. But mostly I wanted to protect us from the fear of like not, you know, it's like if we need to change a character in a big way, then we're going to do that, you know, and we're going to try and stay true to the spirit of the original. But it doesn't mean like we have to like, I didn't want people to be afraid of like fan backlash, um, which is, you know, probably good because we did end up getting quite a bit of fan backlash at first uh, from fans of the original, from the character design changes that we made. Um, But like, I'm really glad that, you know, at that point, like I said, we had already pretty much locked four seasons of the show by the time that first design was released. There's something oddly liberating about that. Just being like, yeah, it's done. There's no changing it now. There's no, like you can yell at us all you want, but it's it's what's done is done. <laughs> Were they angry about like the variety of body shapes in the show or the costumes or, you know, what was the, what was the substance of that backlash? Yeah. I think the biggest component of that was that the original She-Ra is, she's supposed to be 17 um, in the original show, but she is a, you know, a buxom adult looking lady. And that was something that, you know, when we age the characters down, um, so she is less hyper-feminine, she's not, like, you know, as made up and as adult-looking as the original she was. And so I think that it's something that's interesting because um, I, I found that the hardcore fans, like Masters of the Universe still has their hardcore fans who are on the message boards, who have been, like, have stayed fans. They go to PowerCon every year. They've stayed fans for, for you know, 30 plus years at this point. Um, 
And then there was the people who really didn't know what was going on, but they wanted to have an opinion. And in my experience, like we ended up going to PowerCon after the show was announced. And I talked to people who were like, yeah, I don't like the art style. It's not for me, but like, you know, I'm glad that it has a new life. I'm glad that people are into it. And I found so much, there was so much more understanding of it because I think when people are like diehard fans of a property that's that old um they tend to like understand that it's not a given that this show will come back or that it will be the show that they remember but then there are the people who are just kind of like I saw titties on the old one and I don't see titties now and that's what I'm upset about but these were not necessarily people who had much of an investment in She-Ra. It was just this idea. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was an interesting time, but it was also, you know, we got this like outpouring of support at the same time. Um and uh and I knew that if people just gave the show a shot, even fans of the old series who are really attached to to the She-Ra's old look, I I believed in what we were making enough that I knew that People would like it if they gave it a chance. Mm-hmm. And so I think over time, that backlash, that really just faded. Um, right. It, honestly, I don't think most people even remember that backlash anymore. I, I know sometimes fans of the show would be kind of like in my mentions on Twitter and then someone would come along and be like, you turned Shira into a boy and, and the like shock and dismay from the, from the younger fans who hadn't really been there for that initial backlash. And they're like, why would you say this? What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about the show and that I know many people have expressed their love to you about the show is the representational diversity of it. The body shapes, the sexualities, the gender identities, the the races of the characters that that there is is such a variety on display in a in a children's cartoon that I can show my kid is is you know enormous. But it also struck me that part of why it works so well is how matter of fact the show is about it. That to the example I give to friends all the time is you know Bo has two fathers for example, and it is never an important deal. It's never like we have to talk about Bo having two fathers. It's just, he lives, they exist in a world where there's people have two dads. It's just not a big deal. My dads don't know I'm a rebellion fighter. They think I'm at boarding school and I'm supposed to be on break right now. So this is why you never talked about your past? I thought it was because it was dark and painful for you, but your dad seems so nice and normal. But I'm very curious about how you kind of arrived at all of that as a creative process, right? Because um, diversity in our work is a creative thing. It's a thing to be creative about. I'm curious about how you in the writer's room kind of worked through that stuff and what some of the challenges and, and joys of doing that were. I think it started um, inheriting a property like Shira, which has an enormous cast. Um, and part of what I found initially exciting about it was that it had an enormous cast of mostly women. Um, and they had, I think, for the time, they had a very diverse, like they had at least diverse character types. They didn't have diverse bodies. They didn't have diverse races. They were, it was a toy driven company. And so everything was done with the understanding that these would be toys. And so they had a very practical reason for all the characters being the exact same shape, which was that making more than one model is expensive. Mm-hmm. And so that really kind of, uh, drove so much of the creative decisions behind the original Masters of the Universe cartoons. All the men are kind of in the same hunky mold and all the women are in the same hourglass mold. And I had then, those toys as a kid. I remember. Yeah, well. 
I have a couple on my shelf right now. I love them. Yeah. Uh, you know, for the reboot, not being strictly tied to toys was a huge liberating factor. We didn't have to worry necessarily about having, you know, 80 different model types. We could really give each one of these a different silhouette. Um, and then within that, you know, we wanted to show racial diversity. We wanted to show uh, body diversity. We wanted to have LGBT inclusion. Uh, part of that was just like having such a big cast and wanting to flesh out this world, showing what this world was like. And just like all of these things are just part of the tapestry of normal life in this world and part of, you know, the story. And then within that, I also felt watching the original that She-Ra has always been a really gay show. And I think that was intentional. Um, there were a lot of gay people working on the original and it's something that is just like, there's rainbows galore. Like Bo has his tummy out. Like they're like Natasha and Spinnerella were pretty much canonically married in the original show. All of that. I didn't, I didn't make that up. I didn't like push that into the show. I felt that if I didn't include that in the show, I would not be doing justice to the original. And so that's what we tried to do. It was something where, you know, we wanted to, I wanted to make it so that everyone on the crew could put stories that were important to them and that they personally related to and, and explore that through the show and really make it something so that it felt really personal. It felt really real. Um, and so there were moments where like, it's interesting. There were moments like with Double Trouble who we, I really did not know that Double Trouble was going to be a landmark of non-binary representation in animation. We were honestly just doing a character that we felt was fun. Lord Hordak, I'd like to introduce you to Double Trouble. They're our newest asset in taking down the rebellion. Apologies for being rude. I was getting into character. Did it work? Be honest. As always, I'm open to constructive criticism. I wanted this character. It's like, you know, if I'm going to watch my favorite shows from when I was a kid, if I'm going to watch, like, you know, uh, Kim Possible and I love Shigo, what if there was, like, a non-binary Shigo who's also a shapeshifter because I love shapeshifters? And, like, that was kind of, like, on our end, that was as much thought as we put into them being non-binary, it seemed so obvious we didn't think twice. Mm. And then we hired a non-binary actor. And when that season aired, we ended up getting a lot of like uh, kind of conversation about that, which was really interesting because for us, we had just wanted to do, to do a character that we liked and that we related to. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Noelle Stevenson after this. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Do you have questions about the creative process, big or small, whether you're trying to loosen up your writing style or figure out what it is you want to work on, we would love to help. You can drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us an old fashioned phone call at 304-933-WORK. That's 
304-933-9675. We really, really like phone calls. All right, let's rejoin Isaac's conversation with Noelle Stevenson. Is there a way in which it being uh, a sci-fi fantasy show, right? It's not set on the planet Earth. It's set Mm -hmm. in an alternate dimension, among other things, that, you know, you can just kind of create a world where this kind of diversity is matter-of-fact and accepted and celebrated, and it's not a source of um, stress or trauma for the characters. This is a world without homophobia. Um, There is no, like, we're not going to have the typical coming out. We're not going to have the typical dealing with homophobia uh, of not being accepted. And yet there is still kind of a thread there because it's based on real experience. There is kind of a thread there. Uh, like both his dads like no there's no homophobia no there's glimmers not saying oh my god you have two dads I'm so shocked by that but there is like you know my dads don't understand me they don't get what's important to me I have to hide a part of myself from my dads and so in a way it's uh, you know it's it's two gay fathers and their son but it is still like trying to have a core there that feels like something that is real and that is relatable and that people in real life have experienced. Yeah, totally. So when you became the showrunner of Shira, I imagine that was quite a learning experience that, that there, what, what did you have to learn how to do to do that job? Everything. <laughs> yeah. Right. Maybe um, what were yeah. some big ticket items that you needed to learn how to do to kind of do that job? Being a showrunner is not just like coming up with great ideas. It's not doing everything yourself. It's not like, it's not really, you are the person who is like kind of the compass, but most of those ideas are being executed by your crew. So what your job ends up being is management. What it ends up being is, is mediation and, That was the thing that I was somewhat unprepared for because I had come from comics where you do everything yourself. And it's all about like, it's, it's it's the strength of the ideas themselves and how you execute them. But suddenly, you know, I'm not a board artist. I was never trained as a board artist. So now having a team of board artists that I'm working with, my ideas are only as good as what my board artist can execute. So I can write a script that is full of ideas and huge ideas, but if they can't execute it in the time frame allowed, if I'm not making myself clear in that script and they don't know what the purpose of a scene is or what a character's motivation is, then it's not a good script, frankly. Um, and so I had to really change the way that I thought about my job as a creative person because honestly, while the creativity was still a central part of my job, it really became more about communication and suddenly becoming someone whose job was mostly to talk to people and and get resources for them and protect them so that they could do their job and hear any problems that they had and, and look for solutions. It was a really big learning curve for me. I think at first I was very overwhelmed by that. Uh, responsibility because it it was a lot of responsibility honestly like with as someone with around 50 people just in my immediate crew that's not counting the post side that's not counting the animation studio in Korea 
that's not counting so many of these other jobs that also like come into play. Only the people that I'm directly supervising, that's 50 people. And that's 50 people who suddenly their quality of like life, I, I like that comes down to how, what kind of workplace I'm cultivating. Mm-hmm. Suddenly like their ability to get something done on time and not have to work overtime, that comes down to decisions that I've made. Suddenly like having a work environment that is overall positive and is a good place to work and and you don't feel sapped and drained and and looking for other jobs, that comes down to how I, you know, what decisions I make, which mm-hmm. is a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a huge learning curve. And a lot of it I figured out while falling off a cliff and hitting every rock on the way down. But oh, at the end of the day, I also think it was one of the most rewarding parts of the job because, you know, I now have friends from this show and, and, and people that I would work with again in a heartbeat. Some of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And Shira is what it is because of them. Right. All of these ideas, like, that's what I find, I think that's my favorite part of the job in general, is that when you're creating a story, this happened on Nimona too, in a micro way of like, I'm drawing a page, you know what, I think I have a better idea for how I'm going to end this page. And I'm going to just completely change it in the moment. Those little moments of unpredictability, that's when the story comes alive. When you're working with a huge crew like that, suddenly there are so many moments when that can happen. You can be recording an actor and they do a line in a different way than you expected. And suddenly you understand that character in a whole new way that you didn't think was possible. You're, you know, one of your artists turns in a background and it's a different color than you expected. And suddenly it changes the atmosphere of the scene. Every single part of this process, every single level artists, board artists, writers, actors, animation, post, all the parts of these, there are so many moments where those unpredictable little miracles can happen and suddenly the world just changes in front of your eyes. For me, that is the most exciting thing. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that everyone has what they need to really like take advantage of that, that is like, you know, that's most of what my job ended up being. It's interesting. You know, I, I asked Iris, that's my daughter, when I told her I was going to be interviewing you, if she had any questions about your job. <laughs> First, she wanted to know if there was going to be a She-Ra movie, and I had to tell her there wasn't going to be a She-Ra movie and all that. But then she asked, I actually thought this was an interesting question, because we often don't talk about kind of the emotional part of it. She asked, did working on She-Ra make you happy? Which I thought was a really fascinatingly weird question, actually. And so I thought I would go ahead and ask you about... You know, because I know it was a difficult process and it was very, very consuming um, about, you know, navigating the emotions as part of that process and and whether or not you were able to find happiness as you worked through it. Yeah, that is um, I think I would have answered this question differently, depending on when you asked me. I think there was a time on She-Ra when that question would have been something that was incredibly difficult for me to deal with because my whole life like this, this was my dream job. And to enter into an environment that was so often so taxing, that was so intense, like I said, for the longest time, nearly the entirety of my brain was dedicated to Shira. It wasn't just the time I spent at work. I would come home and I would lie awake and I would like run through, you know, props 
in my head and make sure we had all the props that we needed for when we shipped the episode. I would go to a movie and I would see a plot point and I would make a mental note that like, oh, that would work great for Adora. You know, like mo- things like that. Like I would watch TV, just like veg and watch TV. And I would be like, oh, the soundtrack is good here. I'm going to send that as a reference to our composer. Um, there was a time when that made me feel like less of a human. It made me feel like I was just like a vessel for this show, for making this come to fruition. And there were times it was an incredibly hard fight. And honestly, that time was the better part of two years. Um, and there was a time when it really seemed like this was not going to be something that resulted in my happiness. There was a time when it seemed that maybe I wouldn't get to even enjoy the show coming out I wouldn't get to like have my victory lap it would be just maybe bad feelings forever um and I wasn't alone in that there were moments when I think everyone on the show felt disheartened by that we we were up against some incredibly momentous obstacles that really for a time made it seem that this was not feasible that this was not going to work out And uh, I think that when it got the hardest, that was actually the turning point because there something happened on the show, um, and it really seemed like it might be the end of at least my employment on the show. Uh, And it was this moment when everyone on the crew came together and really, really supported me during this hard time. And we all kind of just like, it was a, it was an incredible moment of solidarity where everybody just was like, no, this is our show. We are going to do this show the way we want to do it. We're going to do this the way that we believe in it because it's, this is, this is ours. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really want to get into it here. I think maybe one day I will, but I need a, a bit more distance from it, I think, before I can really... Uh, talk about it in a way that feels honest and true but just to say that like everything changed after that and it allowed me to sort of like it just it just gave me a new strength to be able to approach this show and and to sort of stand my ground and and refuse to be pushed out um and after that there was a really big change that happened around that time and it was almost like it was like the clouds parted and the sun came through and suddenly this weight that we'd all been carrying was lifted and suddenly the job became so much fun. <laughs> I, I cannot describe how quickly this happened and it really came from this moment of solidarity from the crew and I would say that this show made me really, really happy. I think it is an experience that I will treasure for the rest of my life. And I think that the show reflects that. There are so many story arcs in it that reflect what we were going through on the show of the struggle of like, you know, Adora's struggle so often came from my heart of of trying to be the hero that everyone needed and, and worrying in your heart that you're just not enough. Um, and so to be able to give those characters their happy ending, I felt like that was a happy ending for us too. Amazing. Well, Noelle Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us here on Working to Talk about your job and your process. All right. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun.
Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Isaac, I absolutely love that conversation. And I must single out your daughter, Iris, for asking an absolutely fantastic question about whether working on Shira made Noel happy. I appreciated the nuance of Noel's answer, but I also love the directness of the question. It's such a central dilemma. Like when I'm trying to be creative, I often go through a phase of wondering why I am putting myself through this when I could be, you know, doing anything, balancing spreadsheets or watching TV that would make me happier because writing or bringing an idea to life is often kind of a painful process that doesn't even always work out. So I was really glad to hear that Noelle did ultimately find great happiness from the immense amount of work that she devoted to Shira. Yes, I was very relieved that the answer was eventually uh, yes in that story, <laughs> even if there was a period of time when it was uh, no, are you kidding? You know, um, <laughs> It's so tough because creative work can be a source of such great joy, but it can also be a source of really great pain. And often you feel both those things at the same time, and they actually derive from the same thing. I mean, sometimes they don't, right? Sometimes the pain of a creative project has to do with uh, the personnel you're working with or, you know, literal material stuff like the advances run out and you need to make money so you can eat or, you know, whatever it is. But oftentimes it's actually because you're digging deep into yourself or you're digging deep into a difficult subject matter. I mean, to give just one example, you know, when Dan and I were doing The World Only Spins Forward, which is about angels in America, you know, I was also researching the AIDS crisis. I was talking to almost every interview subject was telling me a story of someone they loved who had died and, and what that was like. And th that's, a, that's a very, very difficult thing to be in the midst of. But it's also part of the joy of creating the work was hearing those stories, you know, learning this history, getting closer to it and, and understanding it on a deeper level. Um, and also when you're deep in the creative thing, like, you know, it, and it consumes you and all your life, which is what she described. Um, that's actually really fun, but it also kind of sucks at the same time. And just being able to live with both sides of that is really hard. Yeah. 
Noelle is still very young. She's 29, but she's already made a huge amount of great and very popular work. And so that made her words about the tricks that she uses to convince herself that she's capable of pulling off a project all the more meaningful. I mean, honestly, just hearing someone with her credits list say that made me feel like 100% better about my own very regular feelings of self-doubt. Yes. I mean, you know, it really reveals how much of the creative process is about tricking yourself into mm. continuing to engage in the process, right? Yeah. I loved the image of the reader with her mug of coffee going to the website saying, where's my Nimona this morning? I've, I've been let down. And how that that helped her keep going as an example. I mean, it, it really is true that so much of the work is finding a way to keep going at all costs. Not that you shouldn't take breaks or anything like mm. that, but just to not lose heart, to keep going, to finish is so much part of the work. And sometimes that does involve creating useful fictions and then <laughs> buying into them. Totally. Another thing that really stuck with me was her talk about how, as a showrunner, she was responsible for the 50 people on her immediate crew, not to mention lots of others elsewhere. And the typical way people continue that thought is saying that they're responsible for those people's livelihoods, you know, paying bills and all that. But Noelle talked about being responsible for their quality of life, which as soon as you, well, as soon as I heard that, I thought, wow, okay, yeah, that is the really important thing to be concerned about. Well, especially on television, frankly, I think that people are beginning to become aware of exactly how hard it is to create the TV shows that we all watch. But it is really hard. It's really long hours. You're in a room with your coworkers, whether you're working on animation or on a set for a very long period of time. It's very taxing. And so being a manager in that process absolutely means you know, that one of your responsibilities is to make sure that uh, it's not hell to work on your show. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's a part of it that has nothing to do with television that I think you can relate to as well, June, because, you know, and this has been true when I was a director as well. Anytime you're managing people, mm -hmm. the in many ways, most important part of your job is creating the environment that allows them to do their best work. And I was really happy to hear her say, it actually wasn't that I had to come up with all the ideas. I had to make it possible for everyone to come up with really great ideas and that that was yeah. the thing that she needed to learn how to do. And I think that whether it's a creative project or not, actually, if you're managing that project, that really is one of your paramount responsibilities. Fully agree. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, we also got a listener question this week. We're going to hear our amazing producer, Cameron Drews, read the question uh, Cameron, take it away. Thanks, June. This listener writes, I've always liked helping people in need. I regularly volunteered for a myriad of organizations when I was younger and started a career in nonprofits when I graduated college. I've gotten very good at helping vulnerable people. About eight months ago, I was let go from my job, which was a blessing in disguise. I started drawing and writing again for the first time in years. I had forgotten how alive these things made me feel. I've been able to make a modest living slightly above unemployment for several months now, and I'm seriously considering trying to support myself with my art. The only problem is I feel like this is a very privileged way to live. I've spent most of my life helping people who had very little. If I focus on my art, part of me feels bad that I would probably only be helping privileged people. 
My art and my writing aren't about social issues, so there's no kind of political impact, and I would have to work full-time at my art to make money, so working part-time at a nonprofit probably won't work. Also, volunteering would most likely be a waste of the many talents I've developed over the years. How do I figure out how to move forward? June, I know you have some thoughts on this ready to go. So actually, I'm going to punt <laughs> to you and let you go first on this one. Well, thank you, Isaac. Okay, talking to you, listener. You're spending too much time and brain power worrying about what you could do, which leaves you actually doing nothing. Like they say on planes, put your own mask on before helping others. It sounds like this is a time in your life when working on your art will make you a happier, more productive, wiser person. And if you decide to spend your time and energy exclusively on your own work right now, you're not committing to doing that forever. Perhaps your next act will involve the kind of nonprofit work you've enjoyed and are good at that you've done in the past. And if you end up being wildly successful, by which I guess I mean making lots of money, from your creative work, then you can help people in need by making donations or volunteering. And so in short, I would say, stop worrying and get on with it. Getting on with it probably meaning do your thing. Like it sounds like what you really want to do right now is at least try to do your own art. So I say, go for it. Uh, Yes to all that, June. I too say go for it. But I also just want to say that I so recognize what this person is going through. When I became a full-time writer, I quit a job at a think tank, an anti-discrimination think tank that was doing important work that I that I really loved and, and valued and continue to think is important. But I couldn't do it and meet my deadlines for the writing stuff at the same time. And so I, I decided to, you know, leave and maintain a friendly relationship with them. Um, most friends I know who are full-time artists feel the same way about all of this stuff. Wouldn't it be more useful to the world if I did X. And so I'm just going to say, please do not feel guilty. It is wonderful that you want to try to make a living from your art. And I would not undersell continuing to volunteer as a way of feeding your soul and of helping people. But I do also think that nonprofits tend to create an atmosphere where they make people feel like the only way they can do something that matters, the only way to continue to have worth is to continue to work at that nonprofit, usually for terrible wages in an exploitative (laughs) environment. And there are lots of ways to contribute to the world. But I also recognize this feeling in general. This is one of those, I'm going to go ahead and call this big picture fears. Uh, And as an artist embarking full-time on creative work, you are going to have all sorts of big picture fears along the way. Here are some other ones, some that maybe maybe I've had, who knows. Uh, <laughs> will I be able to make enough money off of this to live? Is the thing I am currently creating any good? Am I doing this subject matter justice? Is my work exposing me in a way that I will find ultimately humiliating? What if I fail, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And the solution, as June actually talked about, is to focus on the work immediately ahead of you. Break that big picture up like a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle into its component parts and then focus on those parts in sequence. You can't solve all of your problems today or all of the work's problems or all of the world's problems. What you can do is work on one piece of it. And that in turn becomes preparation to work on the next piece of it tomorrow and tomorrow 
and so on. And eventually through doing that, you will have space to actually see the picture and then figure out what the problems actually are. And I think you'll be able to do it in a way that is less provoking of anxiety, whatever form that anxiety might take. So that to me is the way through this particular problem, to be completely honest. And uh, I hope it goes well for you. Yeah. Are you feeling anxious about almost having quoted the Scottish play then? I almost uh, did because the Scottish play at the end, he's saying that uh, life has no meaning and all <laughs> ambition is for no purpose because we die. Uh, and I realized halfway through uh, that I was about to do that. And so I decided <laughs> not to. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow does not creep this penny pace day by day, actually. It's how you get anything done. Indeed. Thank you for your question, and we hope that this has been helpful. As for the rest of you, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I'm going to give you a Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcasts, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and more important to us, you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month, and to learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. We'd like to say thank you to Noelle Stevenson for being our guest this week. Uh, thank you to David Hanlon and Emily Breeze for some preparation help. And thanks to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with audiobook narrator, Abby Creighton. Or as June might say, audiobook narrator, Abby Creighton. Until then, get back to work. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.